We're back to Job. We're going to do, look at chapters 4 to 27 today. So buckle up. Here we go. Yeah. Actually, that's not true. We're going to take two Wednesdays to look at chapters 4 through 27. And then we'll take uh, uh, another Wednesday to take a look at uh, Elihu's um, contribution that comes following chapter 31. And then two or three weeks to look at God's response, you know, God v. Job. That, that's how the book uh, ends, with God really bringing a lawsuit against Job. Job wanted God to be in the dock all through the book. And at the end, Job is in the dock and being the one that's tried uh, before God. Chapters 1 and 2 of Job as we've seen, provide a peek behind the curtains of heaven. It's rare the times that we have this. Can you think of other places in the Bible where God opens the doors of heaven and let us take a look at it for a little bit? Isaiah 6, yes. What else? Where? Any other place? Scott. Paul mentioned going to the third heaven. Right, so Paul got the peak of heaven. But we, 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 we didn't, right? The Bible didn't open up that to us. It actually says, I can't talk about all the things that I saw there and so on. But the, 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 there is at least two other places. Revelation 4 and 5, right? Where we see the saints in heaven. And there is another one. Uh, Daniel has all these kind of visions, but it's not necessarily what's going on in heaven, right? It's what's going to happen in the future. I was thinking of the transfiguration where there's an opening there. In essence, God brings heaven to earth, right? In the glorified, in a peak, into, a little peek into the glory of God and the conversation between the Father and the Son there. And Job 2, though, is the most detailed peak, peak behind the curtains of heaven where we are able to see a conversation between Job and Satan. Not Job and Satan, but God and Satan. And that's important because the rest, Job doesn't know. The friends don't know that this conversation took place, so they're operating with a different perspective. But we know the conversation took place. And it's very important that we don't forget Job 1 and 2 before we think about the rest of the book. And that conversation between God and Satan resulted in great suffering for Job, didn't it? Uh, first, in chapter uh, 1, God says, go ahead. Don't, just don't touch Job. And so all the riches, his public um, inf- influence, his kids are all taken from him. In chapter 2, Satan says, you know, yeah, I know he didn't betray you, but if you let me actually touch him, he will forsake you. And then Satan brings great suffering upon Job physically, where he's covered with boils from the top of his head to the, to the toes. And that he is in great pain there. Remember what, the, what, uh, what Satan's hypothesis is that he's trying to prove? He said, this is what I'm going to try to prove. If you let me get Job to suffer, he will do this. Because what, curse God, all right? Yeah? Um, and there's more specifically that Satan wants to turn Job away from uh, he doesn't want Job to worship God. And it's not when he says that, he's actually trying to poke God by saying, 
God, you are not worthy of worship. The only reason why Job is worshiping you is because he's blessed by you in a temporal manner. In this life, he has blessings. Remove the blessings that he has in this life, he is going to curse you because you, God, you're not worthy of worship. And Satan was proven wrong, at least in these two chapters, when at the end of chapter 2, Job still is worshiping God. Look at verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. This is, uh, the, wife, the wife says, just curse God and die. And we try, we, I always look at this thing, man, this wicked woman, now she... But I think there's a measure of compassion here in that just be done with it. If you do this, the trial will be over. Just, just be done. I think we, we can read that in there too. But this is how Job responds. He says, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. That's verse 10 uh, of chapter 2. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? And all this, this, Job did not sin with his lips. So all that Satan tried didn't work. All the suffering that, that Satan brought upon Job with God's permission. So Job, Satan only works as an agent of God. He never acts on his own. Did not work to turn Job away from, from God. So we know at least by chapter 2, verse 10, that Job hadn't sinned against God. Things are going to change as the book goes on, as he becomes more and more emboldened in his accusations against God and his self-righteousness, but at least to this point we know he hadn't sinned against God. And then we saw that Job spent chapter 3 sorrowing, lamenting before God, asking why these things are happening to him, but it was a question of why of faith, like we often see in the Psalms, a why brought to God, because knowing that God is a sovereign God of the universe who can offer that answer if he chooses to do so. And that is the basic question that Job asks through the book, throughout the book, but his attitude changes from chapter 3 to later chapters. Where in chapter 3 he comes in humility before God, later on he comes demanding, and saying that he, if there was an umpire, a referee, somebody could come to judge between him and God, God could not give a good explanation why these things are happening to him. So there's why and why when we come before God. It's not wrong to come before God and ask why. But it has to be the why of humility and of faith, not of why of self-righteousness and arrogance, thinking that we don't deserve to suffer in this life. At the end of chapter 2, the three amigos show up, um, the three new characters are introduced to the story. Uh, if you look at chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, it says this, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this advers- adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naamathite. For they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. So this, they actually planned to come. It seems like they come from a distance. They plan together. Let's go talk to Job. They're going to mourn with them. They're going to weep with Job, who is weeping. So, so far, really good. Verse 12. And when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted their voices and wept. 
Job was so affected by whatever malady God had, Satan had brought upon him that it was not even recognizable. Do you remember somebody else who the Bible says was not recognizable after all the physical maladies that were brought upon him? Jesus, Jesus right, on the cross. It was prophesied really in Isaiah 53 that says he was marred beyond recognition. And that was the case once he went to uh, the cross. So every once in a while we have this little glimpse of Job as perhaps uh, an illustration of the coming Christ. In verse, uh, continue there. In verse 12, and each one, each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. So it seems like they really were um, struggling. They really were sad. They really felt the pain that Job was feeling. They really wanted to help Job. We're going to see that they weren't super helpful, if helpful at all. But I think we often are quick to judge the intent that they had, and perhaps they had the good, in, uh, the right intent. And often, I think we see ourselves as Job, and right, we try. Rarely we place ourselves as the bad character of a story, right? We we tend to find ourselves as the the good guy wearing the white hat, right, and and so on. And uh, I think more often we might be the friends than we are Job. And that's something that we have to keep in mind. And, but, and, but often we are Job, thinking that we're suffering for no reason, and perhaps there are reasons why we are uh, suffering. Nobody says, I'm Goliath, right, in the story of David and Goliath. Everybody wants to be David. And the point is that the story that none of us are David, right? We are the cowering crowd that didn't go fight the giant, that needed somebody else to go fight the giant there. So these three friends go, verse 13, so they sat down and with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. And we saw that there's a time for that. There's, there's great counseling in that where we can sit and weep with somebody. Often the most difficult thing about going visit somebody in the, in the hospital or somebody who's dying is figuring out, or when somebody has died and you go visit the family, is figuring out what to say. Often you don't need to say anything. Often you can just sit with them and even just read a psalm or, or say a prayer. So, Lord, I don't even know what to pray, but you know all things. And those are uh, things that can be helpful to those that are suffering. So at the end of chapter 2, I have these three friends that are introduced. Uh, a note in the... Do you have your... Do you have a Bible tonight? There's a note about these three friends... Um, in the original Geneva Bible from 1560, it says this. It says, These friends came unto him under pretense of consolation, and yet they tormented him more than did all his afflictions. So the, the comment is that these friends were the worst instrument of Satan so far in his life. So according to the scholars who wrote the footnotes, well, you can't call them footnotes, the margin notes of the Geneva Bible, because they're all around the margins was that it was, it was really bad to suffer through the loss of property. It was really bad to suffer through the loss of the family. It was really bad to suffer through the loss of health. But now the real suffering begins with these friends as they come to talk with them. So after seven days of sitting with Job, the friends started speaking. Their, their interaction with Job dominates the rest of the book, chapters 4 to 31. 
Um, that's, that's the interaction that is a late arrival. Elihu comes on later, uh, though he's here and observes a lot of what's going on because later on he says, I've been watching you guys, and you missed the point completely. And we're going to see that later as well. And these dialogues between Job and his friends are the hardest part of the book to know how to interpret it and apply. The reason for that is that at the end, God says, you're wrong. But it doesn't tell us why and where. A lot of times you read what the friends are saying, and say, man, I'll say the same thing. <laughs> right? That sounds so good. And it seems to be saying true things about God. And at the end, somewhere they, they made a mistake. And it's difficult to figure out what, where the error was. So it was a very difficult spot to uh, place in the book to figure out exactly how to interpret it and apply in teaching. But we're going to attempt to do that. Because these chapters were verbally inspired. That is, every word in these chapters are inspired by God. They're breathed by God. They are... And the whole thought, the planet, the, the, they were also plenarily inspired. As everything is, the thoughts and everything else is also inspired. And God tells us through the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy that Job 4 through 31 is part of the Word of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So if we believe that 2 Timothy 3.16 is true, and we believe that there's ways to understand chapters 4 through 27 of Job. Before we continue, are there any questions about the things we've covered so far in the book of Job? All right, so there are two main questions, I think, that uh, there are two main questions that I want to answer tonight uh, regarding these, uh, these chapters. The first one is, who are these men? And the second one is, what is the role of the dialogues in the way that we understand the book of Job as a whole? So who are these three guys? And how does this big chunk of the book fit in our understanding of the whole book? So what, what's the role of the, this to the plot, to what's going on in Job? Have you ever read to the book of Job? Have you ever read Pay Attention to the book of Job? It's just... Uh, it's a fair question, right? <laughs> um, if it did, you notice that there's several cycles of dialogue. Right? It's not just this guy speaks and this guy speaks and it's done. There's actually three cycles of dialogue from the friends. Uh, uh, Eliphaz and Bildad speak three times. Zophar speaks twice. And every time one speaks, Job responds. And then one, the other one speaks and so on. And I want you to notice, if you have your Bible open there to chapter 4, notice that, the, uh, that we, we still have that weird indentation in your Bible. You see that? It's not justified. It's not going all the way across the column or the page. It's kind of indented or centered, almost weird margins. That's because it's poetic language. Uh, this is all Hebrew poetry. Uh, the book of Job is a huge song or a huge poem, much like... Later on, the Greeks did. Uh, Homer, Iliad's, Iliad, and the Odyssey are also Greek poems, but several thousand years later than the book of Job, or a couple thousand years later, 1,500 years later than the book of Job. There. So there are these cycles that go on through the book, 
for example, in chapters 4 and 5, Eliphaz speaks. In chapter 6 and 7, Job responds. Then in chapter 8, Bildad speaks. Then in chapter 9 and 10, Job responds. And then in chapter 11, Zophar speaks. And then in chapter 12, Job responds. responds. And then you start the cycle. Again, Job's responses are usually longer than what the, the friends speak to them. So who are they? Uh, we are given their names. We are given where they are from. So you say, oh, be easy to figure out who these people are. No. It's almost impossible to figure out who these people are. There's a little more information about Eliphaz, the first one. He was uh, likely from Edom because his name is, in, is um, an Edomite name. In Genesis 36, there's an Eliphaz there that's from Edom. So it's from Edom. What do we know about Edom? Well, it's the, the descendants of Esau. Uh, it's, there's a very important player in the New Testament that is uh, an Edomite as well. It's just using a different name, uh, more, uh, more Latinized or Greek Achaize, is such a word. Uh, Herod the Great was an Indomian, which is Edom as well. Uh, they were all, all often enemies of the people of God. You remember in the book of Numbers, several times they, weren't allowed to, they didn't allow Israel to go through their land, and they didn't get along too well. Um, so, he seems to be the, also he seems to be the ring leader. And the reason I say that is because he speaks first, he speaks more, and at the end in chapter 42, God mentions him by name as being wrong. So that's probably something you never want to have, is God say, you by name, you are wrong, and you need to, to repent and, and so on. Um, one thing we can know about these guys is their theology. And a little bit about their personality but by reading what they, they said. Uh, we know that Eliphaz was a proponent of something that became known as retribution theology. And that is the idea that if you do good things, good things are going to happen to you. If you do bad things, bad things are going to happen to you. Now, the book of Proverbs teaches that. right? That generally, that, that's a truism. Generally, that's how society works. But retribution theology teaches that it's not a truism, it's an absolute truth. Truth. If you're righteous, then you never suffer. If you're wicked, then you suffer. The righteous, no, the wicked is never blessed, and the righteous never suffer. Uh, you can see there's a problem with that, but that's the position that these three men have in coming to talk to Job. And Eliphaz himself charges Job with hypocrisy since Job himself according to Eliphaz, taught people who suffer that they are suffering because they did something wrong. Uh, that, that's the charge. Job, we've been with you. When you told people, oh, you're suffering, you must be wicked. There's some sin in your life you need to figure out. And you're being a hypocrite now, saying that you haven't sinned and yet you're suffering. So if you, what you said earlier is true, then you need to figure out what your sin is. Look at what Eliphaz, Eliphaz says in verses 4 and 5, chapter 4. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have strengthened the feeble knees, but now it comes upon you, and you are weary. It touches you, and you are in trouble. You are troubled. And later on it says, 
that the way that Job strengthened the feeble knees is by telling them, hey, you sin, you need to repent. If you're suffering, if there's something wrong that you did, you need to repent. And now he's refusing to do that. Do you see a problem with that? Do you see a problem with the idea that suffering is always associated with um, something wrong that you did? Christ suffered, right, without doing anything wrong. But one could even say, oh, but because our sins are going to be imputed or given to him, that's why. So in, in some ways, he was, in a representative way, suffering for what was wrong. But you're right, but that argument could be made. There's one passage in the Bible that completely debunks this idea, though. You say something? Okay. Okay. But you're going to say now? The blind men of John 9. Now, the disciples ask, uh, who sinned for this man to be blind? Was that the, his parents or him? And Jesus says, neither of them. He was made blind by God for his own glory. Right? So this idea that suffering is always a, a one to one relationship with uh, wickedness, that's not true. However, we, if you're, that's one thing that we have to think about. Is, is this... Can, can this suffering drive me to repentance of, of anything that I need to repent of? But you shouldn't be, okay, if I repent, then everything stops. Because suffering in the New Testament is mostly for what? For our being purified. Yes, our sanctification. For the whole book of First Peter is about that. Remember what uh, James tells us to do when we come into trials and, and testings and difficulties and struggles? To count them all joy. Because they are working in us. As I've said before, I've never met a Christian who said, you know, when my life was perfect, when everything was going well, I grew by leaps and bounds in the Lord. But I've heard testimony. That doesn't mean that it can't happen. But I heard testimony upon testimony. People say, you know what? When these things were happening to me, I grew closer to the Lord. And I was strengthened uh, by Him. So, Eliphaz is really coming to Job with the wrong counsel. And then no, he accused Job saying that it, Job was guilty of sin against God so confess it and be done. In some ways he had the same approach as the wife. Hey man, if you just it's like the, the cop in cop shows, right? Where they say, come on man, we've been here for hours just, just confess it and this will be all gone and you'll be, you'll be, you'll be able to go home. The guy's never going home. We know that, right? And Job was, things weren't going to be done if Job just came up with some sort of sin that he had done. So Eliphaz comes to Job and sees a man suffering, and the only explanation he can come up with is that Job sinned greatly against God. That should not be the only explanation we come up when we see suffering, because that's not the only explanation the Bible gives us concerning suffering. All suffering is the result of sin. The original sin, at least. Curse on the earth. But it doesn't have to be always a result of personal sin. Any questions about that before we continue? All right, Bildad comes up. And again, we, have, we know very little about him. The best guess that scholars can make is that he is from, the, uh, from a region called Middle Euphrates. So somewhere in Iraq, where he was from. That's the closest they... And I don't... I read the explanation. I couldn't figure out how they got to that from his name and from the place where he came from. Bildad, now, Zophar, Eliphaz has wrong accusations, but he's kind 
if you read Zophar's uh, Eliphaz's speech, he's not mean. There's a, there's a little feel of compassion to Job, even though he's wrong. Not Bildad. Bildad coming, you know, aiming for the teeth right off uh, the gate. Look at uh, chapter 8, verse 2. By the way, we're going to look at Job's response all at once at a later lesson. So we're escaping Job's response tonight. Look at uh, how Bildad starts. How long will you speak these things and the words of your mouth be like a strong wind? Does God subvert judgment or does the Almighty pervert justice? So he doesn't come with any nicety, just goes out, man, you're wrong. You are, you're saying that God is a liar. You're saying that God is subverting judgment by not confessing your sin. And so there's no trying to be understanding of all the suffering that he was going to. Bildad is exasperated that Job can't accept what he sees as irrefutable truth. Suffering is caused by personal unrighteousness. Can't you see that, Job? You must have done something wrong. I'm going to beat that out of you if I have to, because you've done something wrong. Now, for, for him, Job was acting as a heretic because he's not believing this idea that uh, suffering always equates sin, and he needed to be needed as treated as such. And then comes Zophar. Nobody knows where he's from. That's the only time that this name is used in the, the, the literature of the time. So this is the word. Remember the word, Nick? From Sunday school? Uh, yes, that's correct. It's the only time in literature of the period that this word is found. So nobody knows where Zophar was, but he was the, the rudest one. He was the toughest one. He was the one that, that really came hard on Job. If you look at chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. It says, should not, so he mocks, mocks Job. That's how he begins. Should not the multitude of words be answered? And should the man full of talk be vindicated? Should your empty talk make men hold their peace? And then you mock, you, and when you mock, should no one rebuke you? So he starts by rebuking, by mocking Job. And he argues that Job hasn't suffered enough. You think he suffered enough? No, you need to suffer more because you're refusing to repent from your sins. Look at verses 4 through 6. For you have said, My doctrine is pure, and I, can clean, uh, I am clean in your eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open His lips against you, that He would show you the secrets of wisdom, for they would double your prudence. Know therefore that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. Job, you just deserve to suffer more, just because you're unwilling to connect your suffering with uh, your sin. So you get a flavor for the arguments of the, the, the friends. That, the, each cycle is the same argument. They don't change. They might use different words, but they keep saying the same thing to Job. So the question is, why are they part of Job's story? Why is so much of the book of Job consumed by these dialogues? Any ideas? I didn't know either. I had to study it to, to form, even formulate in a, a category in my, my mind. But it seems like 
they effectively display how foolish the idea that the righteous never suffer is. That God spent so much ink on it. Just show how foolish this idea is. That somehow the righteous never suffers. Remember what Paul told Timothy? What is the thing that godly, the godly people should expect? Yeah, the godly shall suffer persecution. But we don't get those things. We need pictures. We need repetition. That's what these chapters are here. Or this is especially true when we read these chapters in light of what we know from chapters 1 and 2. Now, what role do the three friends play? So we, the chapters are probably here to help us see how foolish this idea is. But what role do the three friends play in the drama of the book of Job? What is their role, contribution to the plot? Well, this is partially answered in the first question. But in addition, these three friends, you know, we, we tend to think, often we read the book of Job, we tend to think that Satan's involvement stopped at the end of chapter 2. But these three friends become Satan's legal team, tasked with convicting Job, convincing Job that God is unjust. That's really at the end what these arguments. So, Job, if you didn't sin, which you're saying you did, then God must be unjust. That's really what the argument is going. This, this is, this is uh, what's his name? Johnny from OJ's trial. Never mind. Cochran. These are Johnny Cochran here. Most of you don't even know who O.J. Simpson was, so never mind. Uh, this, this is Satan's legal team trying to convince Job that Satan is unjust. That's the role that they play in the plot here. When the suffering by itself failed to turn Job away from God, Satan sent counselors to challenge Job's theology of who God was. That's what they're challenging. Job, you must not believe what you believe concerning God. You must not believe that God is just. You must not believe that God is holy. You must not believe that God knows what he's doing. And we are here to convince you of that. And Satan followed that same tactic with Jesus. He tried to convince Jesus to turn away in the wilderness. Remember how he tempted them and Jesus answered with a simple formula every time, it is written. Right? I always find interesting that, that Satan quotes Psalm 91. No, that the, your angels will pick you up and so on. The next two verses says, and you will crush the serpent. Uh, but Satan stopped too, too soon in his Bible reading uh, to realize what he was doing there. But did, did Satan stop there in tempting Jesus? What was another way that Satan used in Jesus' life to tempt him? Well, Lord, I will not let you die on the cross. I'll keep you from doing that. Remember who said that? Peter. Who was the son of perdition? Judas. So Satan, uh, Satan brought the, used people who were close to Jesus to continue to try to turn Jesus from his mission. And Satan still employs this tactic today. We have to be very careful that the counsel we give to each other is 100% biblical and contextual. It's not, it doesn't have to be in the Bible as in quoting a verse. It has to be, according, it has to be in the context that is in the Bible. Now, these friends came to offer help that was designed to hurt. 
maybe not by them, but by Satan. Uh, and we must never do that. Yet, true spirit-filled help will, will often hurt. So don't equate being hurt by somebody's counsel as their counsel being wrong. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Because often that's going to hurt, but it's going to be a different hurt than this. This was the hurt that led to hell. The, 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 the spirit-filled, wise counsel from a friend is like the surgeon's scalpel. When I had my gallbladder out, it hurt. But I haven't had a night up in pain since then. So it was a hurt that created wellness afterward. The surgeon is cutting what is bad, and the pain will result in healing. Now, the Lord prays, the Lord says that the wounds of a friend are faithful. That's a good thing, right? That is good. We don't want to counsel like Job's friends. On the other hand, we don't want to label true friends who bring counsel into our lives Job's friends. Because we don't want to listen, just because we don't want to listen to what they have to say. Counsel has always to be given and judged by what the Bible says, not about what we want to do. Though the book of Job rightly exhorts us not to listen to counsel of so-called friends that will give us false view of God, the Bible as a whole also teaches us that there is great wisdom in the counsel that the saints closest to us give. And we have to be wise enough to understand that. That, there, that, uh, there is, that the ultimate judgment is not what our hearts desire, but what the scriptures say concerning that particular counsel there. Any questions or comments? So in two weeks, we'll pick up looking at how Job handled his friends' um, counsel to them, to him. Uh, next week, Jim is going to be leading the, 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 the Bible study here. Nick and I will be hopefully already in Florida. If we're not, then something went tremendously wrong. <laughs> All right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that you're good to us. Thank you for this word. Pray that uh, we will be faithful to your word. Pray that you would help us to be godly, good counselors who are pointing people to you, not away from you. And we pray also that you, we would be counsel, counsel, counsel receivers so that we may be pointed to Christ as well. We thank you that you've given us a body that can help us all grow in Christ. We pray that we would be always involved in each other's lives, that we might be able to practice the greatest commandment to love one another as your Son has loved us. We pray that, that we would be faithful to each other, that even when we hurt each other in our counsel, it will be the wounds of a friend, and that's a faithful thing. We pray to dismiss us with your blessings tonight, bring us into your house to worship you on your day, for us in Jesus' name. Amen.